We have been looking for the last few weeks at a series, in a series of uh, the gifts that were brought to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, Dave Perry was speaking about the, the, what gold symbolized, gold brought for a king, and uh, spoke very well on... I wasn't present for that. Um, Steve Thomas spoke last week on frankincense for a priest, and he explained as he stood up that uh, he had been told how very, very well Dave Perry had spoken and how he'd started to feel a little bit intimidated about how he had to follow on from such a good job that Dave did by talking about frankincense. As soon as the meeting finished last week, uh, someone said to me, well, you've got a task then, haven't you? (laughs) So I follow both of them. They've done gold and frankincense. And this morning we have myrrh. Uh, I hope you've all got a bit of a smell of it. Uh, it seemed like a great opportunity to get a bit, uh, approach the Christmas story in a new way through perfume. I don't know whether you've ever done that before, uh, but hopefully it will also help us remember, because uh, as many of us will know, the sense of smell is more closely tied to memory than any of the rest of our senses. And so it won't surprise me if you remember this morning because of the smell, whether you like the smell or not. Myrrh is a, an, a Hebrew or an Aramaic word, and it refers to something specific. Like frankincense, it is the gum, the resinous gum of a tree. This is a conifera uh, tree, and it got called several other things in the ancient world. As well as being called myrrh, it was sometimes called balm of Gilead or balsam of Mecca. The fact that it was associated with Mecca... Uh, helps us to understand that it grew primarily down towards the southern end of Arabia and also over in Ethiopia and Sudan. And if you pricked the tree, what happened was its sap seeped out like this resin, which had in it substances that were fragrant and produced the fragrance that we smell this morning. Actually, the reason for that fragrance, I couldn't resist this, sorry, uh, biologically, my background is as a biologist, it's because it's such an arid place and it's such an important thing for these plants not to allow themselves to be eaten by the insects that are around, that their sap is both resinous uh, so that if anything bites into them, they get absorbed in the gloopiness of it, but it also has these uh, chemicals in it that are poisonous. And actually, were you, there's signs on the myrrh saying not to eat it in case you were tempted. Um, it's quite poisonous as well. And that toxin, which is biologically active, is the thing that we can smell. Anyway, because it grew in those arid places far away from centres of civilization, uh, it was for the civilizations that we're talking about anyway in uh, the Mediterranean world, in the Roman world, and in Babylon and Persia and so on, it was really, really expensive. It was, you could just get it out of a tree by tapping the trees. The trees were a long way away. They were the other side of deserts. And for people to get there was a long and arduous journey. And that meant that myrrh ended up being incredibly expensive. So it was an expensive perfume. Now, why did the wise men, these magi, bring myrrh? And to answer that, we need to delve a little bit further into understanding what was going on in the Middle East, because the Christmas story, it came out in what I think I prayed earlier, the Christmas story so easily has a sense of a sort of a once-upon-a-time feel about it. 
We become so familiar with it that we forget the fact that these were real people who lived in a certain time and place. We need to remember that there really were some men, we don't know quite how many, there were three gifts, we don't know how many magi, who really did visit Bethlehem. And they probably did so in 2 BC. I don't know whether you're aware of this, but most scholars are agreed that Jesus was almost certainly born in 4 BC. That when the calendar was put together and said, that's the year of our Lord, zero, uh, they didn't know as much as is now known from archaeology about when different censuses and kings and governors were in power. And when you add the numbers up, it's pretty clear that Jesus was born a few years before he was thought to have been born, and was actually born around 4 BC. And uh, I don't know if you have looked into the, the, how the star might have worked. Sometimes people have said, well, there was a supernova that just blew up, you know, millions of years ago, and the light's taken millions of years to travel to us, and it just appeared at the right time. That is a very modern way of looking at it, but it's not at all in keeping with the way that the ancient world thought about things. A much better explanation, the best explanation that I know, and I think I have some confidence in, it goes along these lines, that there were lots of people in the ancient world who saw the stars and the planets as being under the control of God, or if they came from another culture than the Hebrews, the gods, plural, and they looked at the movement of the stars for meaning. And some of the meaning that they attached to the planets and the stars were these, that Jupiter was the planet of kings, being the largest. And there was a star that went by the name in Latin of Regulus, which was seen as the star of kings, a planet of kings and the star of kings. And, you know, you can now that we understand the movement of all the planets and stars, you can actually play back through time their movement a couple of thousand years, and when you do that, you can discover, well, at least clever people who can do these things discover that in 3 BC, those two heavenly bodies, Jupiter and Regulus, the planet of the kings and the star of the kings, as they were then understood, met each other from our line of sight from Earth in the sky three times. And for anybody who thought that these heavenly bodies had meaning, that was a remarkably unusual occurrence and something that would have made them stop and think, maybe there's something about kings going on in the destiny of the world at the moment. And perhaps this is a sign that a a special king is to be born. And then it's interesting to know that those times when those two stars, so the star and the planet met in the heavens, uh, happened within the constellation of Leo. And Leo was known as a symbol of the people of Israel. They talked about their God as the Lion of Judah. And so astrologers in that culture at that time would quite reasonably have looked at that and thought, goodness, maybe a special king has been born to the Jews. You can see why They would think that. Real people thinking in the way of their culture. Now, it may be that there was something else in the sky that prompted them to think in the way that they did. 
But that's one thing that would certainly have worked. Maybe these different magi even saw different things and came together with confidence that they had together discerned something. Uh, But it seems that that event, and perhaps others, would have led them to Jerusalem. And the way that the story, as Sam read it earlier, explains it is they didn't simply follow a star in the sky like a sat-nav all the way to the stable. The star led them to Jerusalem. They got an understanding from the heavens that a new king was born in Israel. So they did the logical thing of turning up in Jerusalem and going, wow, where is he then? They did that and arrived probably, therefore, in about 2 BC, which ties in with our understanding of the dates. Because when later on Herod realized he'd been frustrated, he ordered that all the boys aged under two were killed. We think Jesus was born in 4 BC. Having seen these movements in the heavens in 3 BC, the kings might have well have arrived in 2 BC in Jerusalem, arriving saying, we've seen this star, we've seen that this king has come, and Herod asks, when did you see this first happen? And when he puts the dates together, he says, right, well, we, when they've got his, we'll kill not all of the newborn babies, but all of the baby boys aged up to two. Probably the kings got there, sorry, the wise men, I should say, got there when Jesus was uh, about 18 months old not when he was a newborn. And so those nativity scenes that we have where everyone's piled in together, together with the animals, I mean, it's kind of convenient. But what we probably ought to do is put the shepherds in before Christmas and leave the Magi until sometime in the spring and have a little toddler Jesus, just to make the point as to how it really was. So these were real people that turned up thinking, according to their culture, having seen something within their frame of reference that brought them to Bethlehem. Anyway, let's move on. Myrrh, as Al has said, was a royal perfume. It was a royal perfume because it was so expensive. Uh, One ounce of Chanel Number 5 will set you back 300 quid. That's more than an ounce there. Uh, A bottle of a few ounces will set you back quite a bit more. Uh, Myrrh, in the ancient world, because of the distances it had to be carried, was worth its weight in gold. Uh, Gold nowadays is worth about three times how much Chanel No. 5. An ounce of Chanel No. 5 will cost you about 300 quid. An ounce of gold will cost you 800 or 900 quid. And myrrh was in the region of the value of gold. And sometimes it was worth even more. And so it was a fragrance that was only really available to the very elite in society. And in Psalm 45, which is an ode to the king within Israel's uh, poetry there in Psalms, this ode to the king says of the king, all your robes are fragrant with myrrh. Because it was only the king, it was like saying you are well posh. (laughs) In Babylon, when Esther, the Jewish girl, was brought to King Xerxes, and it describes what happened. It said this, before a king's, uh, sorry, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. This was sort of of top-of-the-range beauty treatment for the day. Myrrh, a royal perfume. As Alice also said, 
just going over ground quickly here. Myrrh was also an anointing oil for priests. In Exodus 30, it makes, it gives them an ingredients list, a cooking, um, a mixing list for the sacred oil that would be used to specifically to anoint the temple as a sign of its sacredness and to anoint priests in the nation of Israel as a sign of their sacredness and myrrh was the main component. So, putting this together, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll, you might have noticed something at this point about myrrh and how it connects with a couple of the other things. It was a royal perfume and the first week we looked at gold as fit for a king and myrrh speaks to that. Uh, that We looked a couple of weeks ago at frankincense, incense for a priest, and myrrh was also used as an anointing oil for priests. So it speaks of that as well. But as we've also seen this morning, there is something else about myrrh which is a little bit jarring. It's a little bit different. Herodotus, the Greek historian, wrote, as he was trying to explain, in particular, how people lived life in Egypt. In the most perfect embalming, they fill the abdomen with the purest bruised myrrh. So the poshest people also, when they died, got myrrh. And in particular, filling up their entire abdominal cavity if they were rich enough. Uh, But also, in Jesus' life, in John's Gospel, it tells us that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. This is after Jesus has died. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in those spices, in strips of linen, in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So myrrh, as well as being a royal perfume and anointing for priests, was also balm for a corpse, which is rather different. And uh, it is strange, isn't it, to bring the perfume of death to the birth of a king, Uh, Whoever gave this third gift to Jesus, I think, was a little bit like the grumpy fairy in Sleeping Beauty. Everyone else comes and gives nice things, and then the grumpy fairy, as you'll, I'm sure, know, says, and you're going to die on your 16th birthday by pricking your finger. And whoever brought the myrrh was a little bit like that at this particular baby shower, bringing the perfume of death. Did these wise men know that Jesus would suffer? Did they do this deliberately, bringing this perfume that spoke of death? Well, quite probably. One of the greatest magi of all, perhaps the greatest magus of all time, was a man called Belteshazzar, whose Hebrew name was Daniel. And when the Hebrews were in exile in Babylon, he introduced Hebrew thinking and texts into the school of the Magi as a representative of theirs leading the training of the Magi of Babylon. And within the Hebrew texts, which we can have some confidence found their way into the libraries of the Magi, there was this text from the Hebrews that spoke of their coming king. It says in Isaiah 53 that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. 
a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we're healed. So, we don't know how well informed these wise men were, but we have all of these different bits of the jigsaw to put together. And as we read the story and realize that these men came from the east bringing myrrh, when we understand what that was used for, and when we understand what the Jews expected from their coming king, it it leads us all to one place. And it shows us that Jesus didn't only come into the world as king to sort things out. He didn't only come into the world as priest to connect us to God, but he came into the world specifically to die. He was born not only to live a life and bring teaching, but he was born to die. And God, who made the world, is God is so vast that when he looks at the world, it's a little bit like us looking down at ants scurrying around. He's so much greater and beyond our comprehension. But as God looks at the world, or looked at the world, whereas we might look at ants in pain and trouble and either just despise or dismiss that and move on to something else, or maybe pay attention for a while as a kind of curiosity, God's response to our suffering is radically different. He decided to take on that suffering and to follow through that picture, he made himself into an ant. He made himself actually into a man, but came down and took all of our suffering upon himself. He came to die in such a way that he could then offer us a share in his eternal life. There is, there is no greater gift. There is no greater gift than God becoming man and offering himself in his death for the good of people. There is nothing better than that. I don't know what you're hoping you'll get this Christmas. You might get a really big present, like that, maybe. That's quite exciting. Um, You might get a bigger present. That'd be quite good. Um, You might get a bigger present still. Someone might wrap a house up for you and give it to you. Um, If it goes really well, someone might give you a castle. I don't know. Um, I don't know what we hope for as we approach Christmas, what we hope we'll get. If we can simply remember this morning that there's there's a better gift that has been given to us that brings us pause for thought and remind us that 
we're not going to get anything better. Whatever anyone else could give us, we're not going to get anything better than the offer of eternal life. And all that goes along with that, forgiveness for our sin, a fresh relationship with God, it's not going to get any better than that. Uh, This morning is not the time to explain the mechanics of how all of this worked. If you want to understand how Jesus' death does us good, then you need to get on an Alpha course. Simple as that. Uh, There will be an Alpha course starting. Sorry? Yes, there will be. There will be in the new year. Marcus, would you mind just standing up for a moment? Because Marcus is our Alpha guru. Uh, (laughs) And... uh, If you want to understand, there's a particular week within the Alpha Course that says, why did Jesus die? If you want to understand the mechanics of how did that work then, then get along on the Alpha Course, which we run here on Sunday mornings as an alternative to hearing somebody preach from the stage here. You can come along and join in with that very easily. But um, if you find this morning that you, you really do know that this offer of new life is real, If you find yourself perhaps slightly surprised to realize inside you, you know you have a conviction that that offer of new life is going to work for you and you want to take it up. If you want to receive that gift with, uh, uh, receive that gift today, then I'd just like to take a few moments to pray and ask you to pray with me. Because you don't have to go away from here only with a knowledge that this thing works. You can receive it this morning. And having come in here this morning mortal, you can go out immortal. That's a good offer, isn't it? And for some of you, you're just joyful that that's already taken place in your life. As I say, some people think, that's rather surprising. And I'd like to think about that further. There's Alpha. But so there is, there's one or two people here this morning, I'm sure, who think, you know what? He's right. That is what happens. And I want, to make, uh, I want to take the opportunity. So if that's you this morning, then I'd like you to please just follow this prayer in your own heart with me as I pray it through. It's a prayer that talks about sin, which is a word that means the things that we've done that have led us to be far away from God. The things that we've done that are wrong... They are an issue, and if we're going to come close to God, we just need to name that reality. Say, look, God, I'm sorry for that, but I receive what you offer me. So this is how we'll pray. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I have sinned against you, and that my sins separate me from you. I am truly sorry. I repent of my sins and turn to you for forgiveness. Please, forgive me of my sins and help me to avoid sinning again. I believe that you died on a cross for me. And I invite you to be my saviour and the Lord of my life. To rule in my life from this day forward. Please, send your Holy Spirit to help me. My purpose in life will be to follow you 
and do your will. And so I receive new life from Jesus right now that will last for all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now this, this, story, this story of the baby who came to die is what fired up the early church. I'm going to finish, surprisingly early, by reading some words that they used to remind them of this baby who came to die, God who became man for their good. And it's going to lead us back into worship. So the band had better appear. And I'm going to read together from Philippians 2. I don't know how long we'll worship. That's up to others. But it's a good thing to be doing in the run-up to Christmas. These are the words from Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's worship him. Is it in our hearts to worship him? Just think, if this Christmas, Jesus can be centre stage, front of our field of view, the more we can think about him, the better. So let's give ourselves to a time of worship.